All right, everyone, welcome back to the Royville Movie House. We've just stepped out of the theater and all my popcorn is eaten. So it looks like it's time for our latest review. Yes, this week we have a good movie. It is number 15 on AFI's list, 2001, a space, fan, uh, space odyssey, not fantasy. 2001, a space odyssey from 1968, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, the story was inspired by a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel and other short stories. Um, as a side note, the novelization of this movie, or the novel that everyone knows as 2001 A Space Odyssey, was written actually at the same time the screenplay was written and the movie was being produced, mainly by Arthur C. Clarke with help by Stanley Kubrick. So they joke that... The writing credit should read screenplay by Kubrick and Clark and novel by Clark and Kubrick. So. I think Ellen had a little flub up there because she said our next good movie. And I think she is going to disagree with that. So <laughs> carry on. <laughs> I'm trying to uh, hit the positives right now. So, um, so the cast is actually... Weirdly enough, for a movie that had, like, maybe an hour's worth of dialogue out of almost three hours, a lot of cast. I'm only going to read some of them because I think that's only necessary. These are the only ones that are necessary for us to discuss in the plot. So, Dr. Dave Bowman, it was played by Keir Duella. And Dr. Frank Poole was played by Gary Lockwood. Dr. Haywood R. Floyd is played by William Sylvester. Uh, Moon Watcher is played by Daniel Ricker, and Hal 9000, the voice of Hal 9000 anyway, was played by Douglas Rain. So, the synopsis of the plot, according to IMDb, is after discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind sets off on a quest to find its origins with help from intelligent, intelligent supercomputer Hal 9000. Which I think is a very misleading synopsis. No, okay. Um, I, that's part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, that is the basic premise of what's going on. So, anyway, we're just going to start with a plot. And if we have to go back and talk about characters, we'll do that later. Um, but I don't think we will have to. We've been doing a pretty good job over the past couple of weeks of combining the two major things together. So, as far as the plot goes, we start in prehistoric... The Dawn of Man is yes. what it's called. Yes, it's the first part of the movie. It's called The Dawn of Man. Um, and in The Dawn of Man, there is a number of primate, preter, like pre-human humans. Yeah, they're supposed to kind of be like apes. Um, however, spoilers, it's... Mostly, I think, people in ape costumes. But they do a they do pretty a really good, good job, job. <laughs> especially for the time the movie was made. I will say this over and over and over again. The special effects, both costuming, practical, and special effects, all of that stuff is really well done in this movie. Yeah, and I mean, even though the consoles and like the space age technology might appear dated to us in this time period and like in current day... I think the special effects of that still hold up pretty well. Yeah, it was a it was a very 
very good example of ingenuity. I mean, they were working off of IBM screens, so... Mm -hmm. So, the plot starts with two separate tribes, basically. We follow one, but there is a rival tribe of these prehistoric men who are fighting over a waterhole. It's pretty simple. They scare each other off back and forth so that they can each drink until one day... To the main tribe that we are looking at, uh, there appears an obelisk, which scares them all. And um, basically, it comes from nowhere, and it's like right outside of their cave. Um, They sniff at it, and one of them touches it. This is the character known as Moonwatcher, who was basically their tribe leader. Um, They obviously don't say this because there's no dialogue during this whole 45 minute long. Well, there's a lot of dialogue. It's just. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) They don't translate for us. No, they don't. So Moon Watcher um, gets inspiration by his touching this obelisk to use tools, specifically weapons. Um, They come across a hunting ground or a burial ground for like wildebeest or whatever and he picks up one of the femur bones and figures out that he can use it as a weapon to club things yes so he arms his whole tribe and scares the other tribe off by killing one of uh one of their warriors and they all run off and that's basically the end of the dawn of man part um however the next thing we know, and it's not another subtitled, like, titled part of it. So I think the moon part's supposed to be tacked on to the end of the Dawn of Man. I think. Because the next part, according to the titles in the movie, is the mission to Jupiter. Well, the Unless mission to I, the moon. Did, did, they, did they title that? Um, I'm not sure if they titled it, but I don't think it's the Dawn of Man part still. Okay. Anyway, fast forward. To current day, future 2001. So, well, actually, it was probably 1999 because the mission to Jupiter is 18 months later. Oh, okay. So, um... So, in 1999, we have a large space station and multiple locations, outposts, colonies on the moon. Correct. Um, Really big installations, because they do put people into the special effects of these really big installations to kind of show scale. They are huge. Like, I can't even begin to describe how big these installations are, (laughs) but that's okay. Um, That's not anything I'm arguing with, but these are really large installations, Um, there's a space station in orbit around the moon, as well as some stuff on the surface of the moon. Um, we start on the space station that's in orbit of the moon, um, with Dr. Haywood R. Floyd. He is the head of basically future NASA. Um, I can't remember what they called it. It was ICA, maybe? Something to that effect. Um, I just can't remember what the the acronyms meant, and I probably should have written it down, which 
I don't think for the overall plot it matters too much. But anyway, it's it's uh, what Kubrick saw NASA becoming. He he's a doctor for them. So he's going to a station on the moon, but he's stopping basically at the space station that's in orbit of the moon, which is like an airport. There's like hotels and restaurants and coffee shops and it's like O'Hare, only not as crowded and much more round Um, (laughs) and much more white. Um. He runs into a colleague who introduces him to a Russian scientist who basically asks him, is there an epidemic on this on, on the moon base because the Russians have a moon base nearby and they should know. He's like, I can't tell you that, and walks away. Um, so there are, from that point on, they go to the surface base on the moon, which is called Kravis. Kravis? Kravis? I thought it was Kravis, but that's fine. Um, basically, the epidemic is a cover story because in one of the craters, or near one of the craters, they have found buried deep, on purpose, one of these obelisks. Um, but they can't let everybody know that because everybody's still very competitive um, with their discoveries and things in the future past. I know this is really weird. I keep saying in the future. So I'm, I'm saying it basically from Kubrick's point of view. This was 50 years in the future. Um, 40 years in the future. Anyway, so... The special effects are really, really good in this. Um, pretty much all of the space stuff, the moon and the Jupiter mission, all of it is really realistic. Um, so they go as out... As realistic as they thought it would be. Actually, to be honest with you, I don't think there needs to be a qualification on that. I was, like, I think it probably holds up much, much better than even Star Wars does. Well, Star Wars is a fantasy, though. This is kind of supposed to be more real world. I'm just saying that, obviously, 2001, the movie, is not like the real 2001. So this is an idea of what they thought it might be like. Well, no. It seemed to be very... I think you're you're disagreeing with something that I didn't say. Okay. <laughs> The space footage of all of the stuff is very realistic. The sun rises over the moon, the stuff over Jupiter, all of the moon, all of that stuff does not look animated. It looks as though Stanley Kubrick sent something up in space and took photos. Okay, I see what you're saying now. Okay. Um, So when they visit... um, the site where the obelisk is, um, sunlight hits the obelisk just right and it sends off a radio wave. And that's the end of our mission on the moon. The next thing is, um, our Jupiter mission, which is 18 months later. So we start on our Jupiter mission, which is aboard a ship with Dr. Dave Bowman and Dr. Frank Poole and HAL 9000 as well as three additional doctors who are in stasis. The doctors do not know what the mission actually is. They just know that they have to get there. 
Um, yeah, because the doctors that actually know what they're supposed to be investigating are in stasis. Are in stasis. Um, so, um, Doctor Bowman and Doctor Poole run the spade. Uh, run, run the the the, the vessel um, with the help of Hal Nine Thousand. Uh, Which Hal Nine Thousand, the rough AI. Um, the computer is intelligent enough to simulate or to trick people into thinking that it is sentient. Um, but it basically runs everything on the ship. To me, it makes me think that the two crew members just kind of watch everything, making sure that it kind of runs. If things need to be repaired, they help repair it. And they are the direct link between the ship and home. So, Hal says your communication array is malfunctioning. So, Dr. Poole gets in one of their EVA units, which is the unit that takes them out into space for spacewalks. Um, They also wear a suit, but they have a, a remote unit called an EVA, which stands for something vehicle... Auxiliary. Extravehicular. Okay. Okay. <laughs> EVA. So, um, you can tell how scientifically minded I am. Anyway, he gets into one of their EVA. They have three of these pods, which is confusing to me because for the duration of what they're going to need the EVAs for, they really only need two. But I guess in case one malfunctions... In case one malfunctions, the ship actually could usually sustain a larger crew, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, You have one breakdown, you lose one. Backups are always good. So they have three of these EBAs. Frank goes out... um, Sorry, Frank being Dr. Poole. um, I'm going to start using their first names because Hal refers to them by their first names and they refer to each other by their first names rather than Dr. Bowman, Dr. Poole. So Frank goes out and pulls out what Hal says is malfunctioning. They bring it into their lab and find out it's not actually malfunctioning. Well, the issue with this is that Hal made a mistake. And if Hal made a mistake, that means they probably have to shut him down and possibly reboot him or leave his personality off. Because Hal is not supposed to make these kinds of mistakes. And he runs everything on the ship. So they need to take the emotion chip basically out of data. So, those of you who watch Star Trek understand that. So in, discu- in figuring out that Hal made a mistake and what they need to do... They get into one of the EVA units and turn Hal off, basically, inside the EVA unit. However, there's a window and Hal can see their lips move, which means that he can read their lips. And they were discussing having to turn him off. So Hal suggests, after they get out of the EVA, to take the piece of equipment that he thought was faulty back out. And let it fail altogether so that there will be a recording to mission control basically saying that it failed and they can replace the part. But Frank goes back out. Hal cuts his oxygen line and sets him adrift. Thus killing him. Um, 
there's a long sequence of Dave getting into another EVA and going out and rescuing the body of Frank and bringing him back. And Hal is basically when Dave leaves the main ship, he kills the other three scientists in stasis. Yep. And then how uh, basically clams up. Dave comes back, says, Hal, let me in. Hal doesn't answer. Dave's just like, Hal, Hal, Hal. Finally, Hal acknowledges that he can hear him. He said, let me in. And of course, the most famous line of the movie, Hal saying, Dave, I'm afraid I cannot do that. And it turns out that Hal figured out that they were going to basically kill him. Basically kill Hal 9000. So Dave says, well, that's fine. I'll just use the emergency, the emergency airlock. And the problem with that is what, Steve? That. Dave forgot his helmet. Oh, yeah. Which Hal points out. Says, that will be difficult because you don't have your helmet. <coughs> so Dave comes up with an idea to do it without his helmet anyway. So he like sets a concussive blast that will shoot him basically to the to the inside of the airlock enough that he'll be able to catch on to the emergency lever and shut the door. Which is what exactly happens. And he comes in, Dave's like, what are you, or Dave, sorry. Hal is like, what are you doing, Dave? Where are you going? Dave makes a beeline for Hal's memory, which is because it was 1968, a crap ton of cartridges. So he goes right for the personality center, basically, and just starts disconnecting all of them. Um, what are you doing, Dave? Hal starts saying things like he's scared. And Dave keeps going because he just killed four people. Keeps going and keeps going until Hal is singing Daisy. And becomes basically literally just the computer that runs the ship. There's no personality. There's no AI. It's just the computer that runs the ship. And Dave is the only survivor of the Jupiter mission. So they get into the Jupiter space Pretty much as soon as Hal is disconnected and an automatic message comes on and they talk about the obelisk. Uh, there is another one, another obelisk in orbit around Jupiter or around one of the moons. I can't remember what they said, but it's in the Jupiter system and just floating out there. The um, They found it because the obelisk on the moon, that's where the radio transmission was received. So he goes out in an EVA and interacts with the obelisk and is transported into a Victorian bedroom where he sees middle-aged Dave. Well, there's a very long segment of kind of like a kaleidoscopy style him moving through various light shows various etch-a-sketches various 
uh, neon Tron like landscapes until he gets to this area as he's I think is going into this obelisk in one of the EVA spheres fair enough I mean, it was a very long sequence it was and very bright and colorful reminded me of the sequence when they get to the barrier in the Star Trek the motion picture or when they go through the tunnel in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> okay. That's... Or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the first one. The first one where yeah. they were doing like negative images and weird, right. like, re- yes, weird filters. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that too. Um, so once he's in this like elaborately decorated Victorian bedroom in the middle of, I think, the moon space station... Because it had the same white tile as the moon space station. I think it was actually supposed to be some kind of other planar location. But it was tiled. I mean, it was tiled exactly like the moon space station. Yeah, but I don't think that's a reference. Okay. Well, with it being Kubrick, it's really hard for me to believe that he didn't do that on purpose. Okay. I, I mean, I'm just saying, like, he... Tends to not do things like that, not on purpose. But it doesn't matter because it's a white space with white tiles and really elaborate Victorian furniture. And he sees middle-aged him and then becomes middle-aged Dave. And then middle-aged Dave sees elderly Dave who's eating dinner and knocks over his wine and becomes elderly Dave and turns and sees even more elderly Dave dying on the bed. And then becomes a fetus. And then becomes a giant fetus that is floating, watching Earth. Yeah, and it appears to me that the fetus... I could just be thinking too much into this, but the fetus, in my opinion, didn't have baby's eyes. It had Dave's eyes. It had Dave's face. Like, so yeah. he had become, or the obelisk created this. Well, if you've read the book, he's, he created the star child um, from either... I mean, it's what it's called, but if you're just watching the movie from either... Dave's DNA, Dave being reborn, Dave chilling too long in the obelisk. Yeah, but it it appears to be setting Dave as the wa- like the guardian or the watcher of Earth because he's back at Earth. He's not at Jupiter anymore. Right. Um, and that's pretty much it. And in all honesty, like, I don't know what to say because. It's definitely a Kubrick film. Kubrick. I don't know how to say it. Kubrick. (laughs) It's definitely a Kubrick film because all of the weird kind of existential landscapey stuff. I mean, it's, it's all there. And honestly, I... I bought this movie when I was a lot younger. Um, I don't know how many of this stuff of ours you've listened to, but to me, I'm a huge, not only science fiction fan, but space exploration fan. I'm, 
you know, in another life, I wish I would have been an astronaut. Uh, I follow what NASA does. Um, I'm all about, you know, learning about space exploration and the like. Obviously, this is right up that alley. Um, I enjoyed the movie when I was younger, uh, a lot of the time because of the, the imagery and um, kind of the, the discovering the unknown, the obelisk, inform- the obelisk items, artifacts fascinated me. And watching this movie again now, this movie could have been now the book okay if you take 2001 in space odyssey the book which i recommend but that's just me once again background um it's about 200 pages long so in our day and age that is not a very long book however this movie based off of the sentinel the short story and and the book that they they wrote together could have been literally a half hour long and gotten everything in this movie in the half hour. I think that part of the problem was that Kubrick removed much of the dialogue that Clark and him had written so that he could get a much more visual and visceral sort of story. But the fact is that until... They left the moon until the Jupiter mission. There was really not, there was really not a plot. It was just showing you what the obelisk does, which I understand is necessary for the plot for the Jupiter mission. I do understand that, that the obelisk is the spark of creativity or whatever spurs um, evolution forward is, I mean, that's what I took from it, but that isn't necessarily, it, it's a whole symbolic thing, so it can mean something different to somebody else. But for me, what it meant was that this was the point that human beings were going to evolve majorly. So they showed the dawn of man with Moon Watcher creating weapons, creating tools and weapons in order to make his life better. That's where human beings became human beings, basically is when they started being able to use tools over their primate brothers and sisters. Now we're at another point of evolution. And so the obelisk became active again. And granted, this one took two and we're in space and whatever, but I get that. However, we did not need an hour and a half for it to be beaten into our heads. That this is what these things do. Well, true. I mean... Like, Dawn of Man. That segment literally probably could have been about two minutes. Maybe three or four. Just to kind of establish everything. I think the it was about 20, 30 minutes of the movie. I'm not exactly sure. Um, The ride to the space station and then to the moon was probably another half hour of the movie. Probably. You could have done that in five minutes. And then all the stuff on the moon could have been that. That to me is the interesting part of it. That's I mean, even even with that, you could have done five, ten minutes. So now we're trucking in at about 
40 minutes-ish if you well, give each section. Taking taking into account what I just said mm-hmm. about the time, about 20 minutes. Yeah, 20 to 30, yep. And then you could have done the rest of the movie in about 15, 20 minutes. So you're talking about, at the most, a 40-minute movie. And this was two and a half hours. It was a very long movie. But there's movement, there's the, I mean, you get a score of classical music as ships are moving from one place to another very, very slowly. That could have been that they needed to move a very large distance. Um, I did like that pretty much the only outside um, sound that you got uh, when you're in space is either the music or um, sound that could be through somebody's speaker. Like, for example, when they were on a spacewalk, the only real sound you heard was if, so to speak, you had the helmet on, you were hearing what was in the helmet. Um, You weren't hearing any sounds from outside, outer space. That is true. Yes, I was going to get to the score. The score is actually pretty fantastic. It it, uh, uses Blue Danube by Johann Strauss. And it uses also Sprach Zarathustra. I I can never pronounce this, but it's the main theme of 2001. If you live in the United States and are of a certain age, you definitely know the main theme from 2001 A Space Odyssey, whether you've seen the movie or not. It's, uh, yes. I'm not going to sing it because nobody needs to hear that, but yes. (laughs) Well, copyright. I don't think it's copyrighted, but. Well, okay. But whatever. Um, there's also some other classical pieces by various uh, lesser-known composers. Um, z- uh, but it, it was a pretty masterful use of that, especially Blue Danube in, in space. Um, when they were flying, it was like it was a, it was like docking and landing the shuttles and whatnot were like a ballet. Because it coordinated that pretty well. Um, So I did like that a lot. I also did enjoy that Kubrick, the space station uh, uh, orbiting the moon and the pod to Jupiter, the the vessel to Jupiter, they were both round. And the filter that they used on the camera was like rounded. It was like a fisheye almost, but not as severe. So it looked like everything was rounded. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Okay. Like it was pretty consistent through both of those uh, sequences. Um, I did like how they did gravity. Like artificial gravity that was pretty illustrative of probably a pretty realistic way to do it. Which I think they were wearing magnetic shoes. Because they were walking weird. Yeah, they well, the bottom of their shoes or their shoes said like grip something mm-hmm. or whatever. So some kind of shoe that you wear in the vacuum or in zero G to help you move around, whether it was magnetic or it was some kind of special suction or whatever. Yeah. 
the the and I'm talking about the stewardesses on the the shuttle and right. The, um, once you get up aboard the Jupiter, they only use that that sort of thing once. I think in one scene. Well, they had a rotating section so that it created its own gravity. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So, Steve, do you enjoy this as an adult? I wish it would have been shorter. Um, there was a lot of extra stuff that I thought, even though it was spectac- it was stunning, um, I think it did bog the movie down quite a bit. Um, my modern sensibilities wants more action. Uh, I do enjoy watching the movie. However, I would probably in the future fast forward through, so I'm saying 40 minutes, it's an hour, it's two and a half hours. I would probably say, I would probably fast forward about through 65% of it. I can acknowledge that this is a well-made movie. I can acknowledge that it's even a well-put-together and well-written movie and even a well-acted movie. This is an important movie to uh, signify certain type of movie-making and American movie evolution. However, I really hate this movie. (laughs) All right. I hate it. Mainly because it's hard for me to focus on a plot that is really hard to follow to begin with, with no actual interaction with the plot. There's too much showing and not enough telling. Like, there's a good balance in storytelling between show and tell. And I know everybody says show, not tell in a movie format. And that's fine, but there was entirely too much showing in this. It was almost like it was a tourist video reel of why you should visit prehistoric Earth or why you should visit Jupiter. Like, there was just... It's a scenery reel. It wasn't a story. Yeah, I mean, the movie did slow down to less than a crawl on a number of a number of instances. I mean, you would have a scene where you'd get exposition and figure out what's going on, and then you would literally have a scene that showed, like, the ship going for minutes at a time where nothing is being... Uh, the plot is not being forwarded at all. There's no dialogue... Um, it just slows to a crawl on many occasions. I can acknowledge all of the hard work that Kubrick put into this, that Clark put into this, and I probably would enjoy the books. I haven't read any of them, but um, I'm not familiar with Arthur C. Clark's work or writing style, so maybe it's slow. I don't know. However, given that... Clark and Kubrick wrote at least double the dialogue that's actually in the movie and Kubrick cut it. It makes me believe that I probably would enjoy the books a lot better than this movie. Um, 
I'm not a gigantic hard sci-fi person, and this is definitely a hard sci-fi story. Um, I just don't follow science as well, like that kind of science as well as um, as others. However, I can acknowledge all the hard work and the amazing work that Kubrick did in the filmmaking part of this to make everything look realistic, to make everybody believe that this is where we live right now for these next three hours. We're in space. Like, it it was a very realistic depiction of what I would picture space being in my head if you were actually there looking out a window. Mm. Um, he consulted with a number of different experts, a number of different scientists. Um, namely, one of the ones that stood out to me was Carl Sagan, and Carl Sagan actually recommended to both uh, Clark and Kubrick, instead of making an alien being, make it an alien intelligence, which is what I think the end of the movie was creating for Dave to move into. He's an alien intelligence now. I could be wrong, but just having read that before I watched the movie, I'm assuming that's kind of visually what they were telling us. Um, I just think that Kubrick failed completely in telling a cohesive story that can sustain almost three hours worth of runtime. And I know a lot of people are going to, you know, a lot of people would come at me with that. Like, I don't like this movie <laughs> because I wasn't entertained by it. And to me, a movie should entertain. Just because a movie is important and moves forward technological things or even specific storytelling styles if it doesn't entertain to me it's a failure as a movie i mean the thing is too to me it seems like also this is three movies i mean you have dawn of man the information around the moon and then you also have the mission to jupiter in all of those parts of the movie, you have actors that don't appear in the other parts of the movie. So you're not even introduced to... So you have the apes, the, the dawn of man. You don't see them again after their part of the movie is over. Then it goes to kind of a near futuristic, we're on the moon. And there are a number of people introduced and they talk and you are trying to get into what they're doing in their lives. And, and you're, you're introduced to their lives. You're introduced to their family. And then that is the middle part of the movie. And then it moves on to the Jupiter mission. And you don't hear or really talk to those people again for the rest of the movie. Where there you're introduced to the two astronauts. And... or. Astronauts, uh, the the people on the ship, and then you don't reference the apes. You don't reference really. You reference the moon event, but you don't talk about really the people or anything. So, and those people didn't talk about the astronauts uh, on the ship. So now you're introduced to two absolutely new people, and it just makes it appear to me that especially in my modern sensibilities of filmmaking, that it's three different movies that were way too long that could have had a lot more cohesive story and been less than half the time. So I think that our consensus on this movie 
is that it's important. Oh, yeah. I mean, I believe it's important, especially in the time it was made. I mean, the special effects, yes, the technology that they used kind of appears to be outdated to us, maybe. Um, however, the special effects, I think, still hold up. Yeah, it's a little bit psychedelic when David goes into the obelisk um, around Jupiter. But, like, for example, we mentioned in, or I mentioned uh, to Ellen in the book, and she agreed that it was, the obelisk was actually around Saturn in the book. Well, they couldn't do that in the filming because the rings didn't work well. Uh, so they decided to do Jupiter. Well, Jupiter is amazing in the movie. Um, there's a little bit of odd lighting, uh, not as many shadows as you would think on, so to speak, the, the or not so to speak, but the spacecraft. Um, but still, the technology that they used in creating the special effects still holds up i think really really well granted there's some kubrick lighting mm-hmm. uh it's a little off-putting uh but still um yes uh, it does i think need to be on the list um but sitting down and watching it for entertainment um ellen shaking her head and i kind of sadly as much as I am into space exploration and the hard sci-fi, um, it's not that enjoyable of a movie. No. It's important for the sci-fi stuff. It's important for all the research that Kubrick and Clark put into it. It's important because it's an actually really good example of Kubrick's style. Um, and Kubrick is an important director. He... I don't even know what to call his style. It's like surrealist, but not. I don't know. It's Kubrick. And you know you know it when you're looking at it. And this movie is actually a really good example of it. Especially the sequence of Dave inside the obelisk becoming the star child. So um, this movie is important, but it is not entertaining to me. And I know there, there are people out there who do find this movie entertaining. And that's fine great if i had known because the first time i watched it the, the yesterday was not the first time i've watched this movie um but the first time i watched it i may have a different attitude towards it had i approached it as a piece of art rather than a piece of entertainment and i do know that film is art but film is art art in the same way that theater is art and music is art it still should entertain and engage you this is art as in a painter paints yeah kubrick reminds me of now i could totally get this wrong but Andy warhol the pop culture like with the um the campbell soup guy campbell soup guy no like yeah the the painting with the different faces yeah, with different colors. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Kubrick reminds me of if Andy Warhol made films. Which he did, but it was still a but, same, but yeah. yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's... it. I agree, it, I agree. <laughs> very, very artsy, very... Maybe above my head. Yeah, that could be too. And I mean, I, I do pride myself on being intelligent, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just not smart enough for Kubrick. Which is okay. 
I, I'll, I'll stick with the other stuff that I find entertaining. It's okay if I don't find Kubrick entertaining, for the most part. There are movies I do like by him, but it's few and far between, and he's got a really big filmography. So, it's okay. It's okay. I can stick with my Jurassic Park from Steven Spielberg. I'm okay with that, and I know that's really not artsy, but... Um, it is pretty, and if I could turn the sound down... And just have it going on the TV. Like if we had like a dinner party or whatever, it'd be a great background for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't want to I don't want to belittle the storytelling aspect of it because when he was telling the story, it was actually pretty good. But the fact is the story was so so it was a minority of time. I I don't know how to say this. It was not the major part of this movie was not the storytelling. The major part of this movie was showing the extra stuff, like the evolution of man and space travel and all of this other stuff that they've consulted with a bunch of experts on so they can depict it realistically. The storytelling aspect of it wasn't the first priority of this, Mm. or at least that's not how I see it. If you disagree, disagree, make a comment on it. We can talk. No, I I agree with you. I mean, it, I don't know if the storytelling aspect was something that he really didn't think about. Um, well, I'm not saying he didn't think I, about it. I just don't think he prioritized it. Do you understand what I mean? I think he prioritizes as much as he prioritized everything else in the movie, which is, I think, is what my issue is <laughs> okay <laughs> i think you should have prioritized the storytelling um as number one and yes you could have very good visual scenes however you could have very good visual scenes that did not slow the film to a crawl for 10 20 minutes that's yeah. my opinion okay well next week we watch a bad movie called spider baby starring lon cheney jr All right, well, that is our review of one of the 50 best movies of all time, 2001, A Space Odyssey. If you liked this review, please subscribe for more reviews. If you didn't like this review, um, don't subscribe, I guess, but uh, hit notifications for more reviews. Please comment if you want to, and if you've seen this movie and you have something you want to say about it, Other than that, it looks like they are lighting the lamps on the streets of Royville. So until we rent out the theater for our next movie, have a good night, everyone. Bye-bye.